This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Let me bring in my first guest because coming up this week, well, let me let me stop for a second. If you've been out of your house at all in the last little while around the city of Hamilton uh, and been out with an appetite, you have probably noticed that this city actually has a lot, a real big number of new, pretty fantastic restaurants. I've been to a few of them. I haven't been to all of them by any stretch. There's way too many for me to even keep up with at this point. But those that I've been to, without exception, fantastic. Fantastic. Last week, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Last week, I even stumbled on, now this is not a fancy place, but a pizza place in town that serves tandoori chicken pizza. Now, if you like Indian food, if you like pizza, oh, it's an unbelievable combination. Best pizza I've ever had, honestly. And now tons of the restaurants, some of them new, some of the old ones in this city are involved in something called Nosh, which is a week-long celebration of the city's food culture that starts next week. Well, Heather Peter runs a blog called Hamilton Small Fries. It's about all things food in this city. And Heather joins me now. Heather, how are you tonight? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for coming on and doing this. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. My understanding was that we were supposed to be a coffee shop and fast food city. What has happened to us? Um, well, really, there's so much to choose from in the city. It's way more than just cafes and fast food and that sort of thing. But there's just been huge growth in the food community, and it's awesome. Why is that? Any idea why we've seen this? Um, honestly, I'm not really sure. There's just so many great chefs in the city, and I think the city is so supportive of that sort of thing and the sort of creativity that they're bringing to the scene. And that's probably why there's been so much growth in that industry. Is this, is this mostly aimed, are these restaurants that are popping up, are they mostly aimed at a certain type of diner, a certain type of food, a segment of the population, or, you know, are they, are they broader than that? Is there a very broad scale of what's popping up or are they all kind of in the same niche? No, I'd, I'd say there's a very broad variation of what you can find in the city. Like, there's everything from fine dining to little tapas to a casual meal, and they're all different and creative and interesting, and it's just awesome. And yet, at the same time, the, a lot of the ones that I've seen, a lot of the ones I've been in, not all of them by any stretch, there seems to, if there's one thing that seems to be commonplace anyway, a lot of them for a lack of word, the, the aesthetic, the look of them seems to almost be very industrial or rugged. And, and, and that sort of seems to fit in, I guess, with the Hamilton vibe. Um, yeah. but it's, but that really seems to be a common thing right now. It's a real, I, I hate this word, but almost like earthy or raw kind of feeling you get when you walk into some of these places. Well, I think Hamilton has always been known as a steel city and while we may not be anymore, people still see us as an industrial sort of area. So a lot of restaurants have that, they bring that take into their, their food offerings as well. Now, I was just reading online the other day, and it was kind of funny. I can't remember why I got to it, but I think someone directed me to this uh, magazine piece. I, I don't know what magazine it was. It was an online magazine. And there was a new chef in Hamilton. He was a transplanted, I think he was a transplanted Torontonian who had come to Hamilton. And I don't know when he spoke to the magazine. I don't know what was going on, but one of the comments he made was, and it was ill-advised, was that, well, he had to set up shop here because there really weren't many fine dining, good restaurant options for Hamiltonians and they deserve better. And not surprisingly, 
a lot of people on the comments went berserk. People aren't just, it's not just that there are a lot of places here, Heather, it's that it seems that this has now become, we're very proud of the number of places that have, be, have, have landed here. Definitely. Yeah. And I think people, they don't want to see someone from Toronto saying that they've come in to rescue the food scene. The food scene <laughs> right here on its own and, you know, they add to it, but they're definitely not saving us because we have our own thing going here. Are all these restaurants popping up downtown or are they all over the city? Um, there's been mostly growth downtown, but there is, you know, it's spreading East End. We have a lot on concession as well, more spreading down to Upper James. So I think there's going to be a lot more growth up on the mountain as well and East. How do people find out about these places, Heather? Because a lot of them, let's be honest, a lot of them are quite small. They're little places that might have six or seven or 10 tables. They're not massive buildings that stand alone. They could be in the middle of a, of a block somewhere. How, how are people finding all these places? Just word of mouth? Honestly, Hamilton has a great social media presence, like better than any other city I've seen, actually. And they're super active in the Twitter community, and it's all word of mouth. Everyone wants to support each other, and that's how people find out about them. You mentioned the number of great chefs that are coming here, and there, there have been. Are the, and some of them are coming from Toronto, some are coming from here, some are coming from wherever. But when you start bringing great chefs here who have great ideas and want to cook really high quality and adventurous food, because a lot of them are adventurous. Does that drive up prices? Are we seeing a huge increase in the cost to go out for dinner in Hamilton these days? I don't really think it's unreasonable at the moment. Um, It's possible that as more chefs come in from other locations, prices will go up. But for the most part, Hamilton is still reasonable for, for food options. There is, now this uh, event is called Nosh and it's got, do you know how many people or how many restaurants are involved in it in this city? Oh, I have no idea. I know there's a huge, huge amount in it now and it's bigger than Hamilton Economic Development even expected we would have, so. Well, and part of that is Monday at Leuna Station, Monday evening, there is something called Chef Wars and there's a number of the top local chefs will be in a cooking competition like, I don't know, Iron Chef or Chopped or... Whatever else, I just can't imagine something like this happening five years ago. It just seems like such a uh, a step up from where things were even five or seven years ago. Yeah, definitely. Like the food scene five years ago, there was still quite a lot of good restaurants, but it's definitely seen huge growth since then. And people are a lot more open to trying new things and promoting the culinary scene. And yeah. The... Well, what are we known for then? Because if everybody, I mean, a lot of places, if we've got all these restaurants that are opening, if you were going to be talking to someone who's coming from another town and you were describing our food scene here, how would you describe us? What, what are we? What, what kind of food do, are we known for? What kind of vibe are we known for? Um, I think probably creative. And I think a lot of that is the fact that we went from being a steel city and then we moved into like the burgeoning art scene and probably a lot of the creative creative people came from different places or, you know, started showing their things during that, that big uh, expansion, I guess, of the art scene. And that just brought out a lot of creative chefs as well. And, you know. So this is an art, this is an extension basically of the, I mean, I know it's not on during Supercrawl and stuff, but it's an extension of that kind of Hamilton thing. 
so because, you know, it's creative people in the art scene, it's creative people in the food scene. I'd say that they would relate. Now, I, I hate to play favorites, and none of these people, I don't know if they're advertisers here or not, but that's, I'm not going to worry about that right now. Give me a couple places, because you've been around, you've got this blog, again, it's, uh, it's Hamilton Small Fries, it's a great blog, it's about things to do with food and things to do with dining and all kinds of things in this city. Uh, give me a couple places that if you were taking someone, if you brought someone to this city and you said, we got to go out for dinner, where are the places people have to know about? Give me two or three of the places they must know exist in this city to go try. Uh, well, I would say Mezcal for sure. That's one of my favorites. Now, where's that? It's on James Street South. And I would say Fish and Chip on King William. And maybe Poke in the Hamilton Farmer's Market. Now, it's funny because a lot of people listening may or may not be familiar with these. I've, I knew two of those. I didn't know the last one. Yeah. Um, are these brand new places or are these places that have established themselves now? Um, they've been around, like, I think Mezcal has been around for a bit. Fish and Chip is quite new and Poke, probably about a year it's been around. It's, um, it speaks to, you know, again, how, how quickly things are changing and how quickly they're popping up in this city. And, and, and I imagine, Heather, that as you know, with everyone that is going to pop up, we're going to have some that have come and gone already too. I mean, it, it, you don't have all restaurants starting without some also dropping off the face of the earth. You can read, listen, Heather's stuff is, uh, again, it's called Hamilton Small Fries. It's a blog. You can look at it up on, online, and she's got all kinds of stuff on there. Heather, listen, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's a, um, it's a really cool thing that's coming up, because when I moved to Hamilton back in 1989, I can tell you that when I first, I'll tell you a true story. My first night in Hamilton, the landlord of the place where I was staying told me how to get to Jackson Square. I had no idea what Jackson Square was. But Jackson Square at that time, according to my landlord, was essentially really the only place to go in the city to get anything. Now, times have changed, obviously. I would never back then probably have gone on James Street North. There are other places in town that I would never have gone. And now all of a sudden you're seeing these places pop up. And it may not be everyone's thing, to go and try these unique, interesting restaurants. There's a couple of restaurants in town. There's one in particular. I was looking actually, we were, we had people in town for Thanksgiving and they were staying overnight and we were looking at one of these places and some of the stuff that's on the menu is really adventurous. I mean, you, and they even say on the menu, this is to take you out of your comfort zone to try things and it's going to be delicious, but be prepared that there's going to be some things perhaps that you may not have eaten before that you may have served to you. Well, that is so un-Hamilton the way Hamilton was 10, 15, 20 years ago that we would have this kind of culinary scene that you would have a chef, you would have a menu warning you that it's going to be great, but it's not just meat and potatoes. It's not fries and a sandwich. And I'm not in any way dumping on the city the way it was, but it has definitely, definitely, definitely changed. And you can walk around, especially, especially downtown now, you can walk around and you're going to have to look pretty hard to find a block or two that doesn't have some kind of new restaurant on it that will catch your eye. 
and that probably has something pretty good. We are very lucky in the city right now with the restaurants that we have because not every city has this. And as I said, the ones I've been to, I have yet to hit one that I've walked out of there and said, man, that was awful. I have yet to hit that restaurant. More commonly, I've left and I said, how did I not know about this place before? It's not a bad thing. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. It was CFL trade deadline day. Did you have your snacks in the bowl? Did you have your drinks? Were you by the TV for the entire day watching the panels? Were you tuned in? Did you have Twitter on lockdown to be able to catch every one of the trades that happened? Were you were you literally vibrating with excitement all day knowing the trades that were going to come down the pike that would shake the CFL and the teams in the CFL to the foundation of each of their cores. Was that the case for you? Rick Zamperin, now joining me online, CHML sports director, brand assistant director, on and on and on. Uh, Rick, was that you? Were, you? were you at home today or at work today simply unable to concentrate because of the excitement of CFL trade deadline day? Scott, my fingernails are completely gone as 3.59 p.m. this afternoon was nearing. Uh, I just could not contain myself. Well, because (laughs) the complete lack of any kind of trades meant that you knew that as 3.59 approached, the blockbuster was going to land. Well, I I was waiting for some kind of malfunctioning fax machine with the Argonauts that uh, would derail any kind of possible trade that they were orchestrating. Well, And that did not materialize either. No, well, the last time the CFL had a huge thing that they were about to announce, if you recall this, um, was when the schedule was being released back in April, maybe yeah. it was. February, March, yeah. And their Twitter feed got stuck. And so, if you remember this, the CFL fired off the CFL schedule is released tweet about 600 times while people were frantically <laughs> tweeting, please turn it off, you're breaking my computer. And finally, they turned it off. But uh, no such luck today because, Rick, um, you know, it's tough to have an exciting trade deadline day when there aren't any trades. Very, very accurate, yes. And, and, and we know that, you know, there, there's a trade deadline in the NFL as well, and there's very few, if any, trades, let alone blockbuster trades. It's, it's, it's a sport that lends itself to non-movement from club to club. Yeah, guys get released, and there's a couple of trades here and there. But for the most part, when you start your season with a particular roster, practice roster, injured list, you know, those are the guys that, that you're going to go with. Uh, there's going to be a few deletions and, and additions throughout the season, but it's usually not from one team to the next. You're you're uh, picking up a crop of uh, you know discarded NFL players uh, in and around Labor Day. Uh, you're waiting for negotiation list players to maybe become available from uh, either failed uh, NFL experience, uh, experiments or you know arena league or whatever the case is. But there's very few trades throughout the year from from team to team. We know that, and you're absolutely right. I mean, football is one of those sports that you just don't see it a ton, especially in season. But we've seen with the NHL, it's become a full day, not just a full day, the huge lead up, but a full day extravaganza on TV. Every sports channel basically shuts down, well, not shuts down, ramps it up really for the day. Everything else is shut down. With baseball, it's become a big thing recently with coverage. 
it seems to me that even though football doesn't really have something like this for the CFL and for the NFL, but for the CFL, it's a missed opportunity to do something, to find some way to have something at this time of year that really gets fans engaged in the stuff that's going on as we get closer to the playoffs. Yeah, there's no doubt about it for, for the NHL, uh, Major League Baseball, certainly the NBA would be in that category as well. But the trade deadline, when there are even uh, less than uh, you know significant moves, if, if there's a notable player that's involved in the trade, it doesn't have to be a blockbuster. You know, fans are going to take note. Uh, you're going to be on uh, you know the radars of, of radio stations and TV stations and newspapers and magazines and, and, and you know online websites. Um, what what really hurts football, not just the CFL, but the NFL is in this category too, is a couple of things. Number one, especially in the CFL's case, I mean the trade deadline comes four weeks before the end of the regular season. There's not too many teams that are going to bring in a guy who's going to be an impact player, unless it's a superstar guy. Because he's got to learn the terminology, he's got to learn the playbook, he's got to gel with his with his teammates, and by the time all that happens, regular season probably over. So and yeah, and the guys that, and the guys like that that you're talking about, just to interrupt for one second, the guys you would that would get attention are the skill guys, and those are the guys who it would take the longest to learn the playbook. You could maybe bring in a lineman, but there, I mean, how how exciting is it to bring in a lineman? That's not going to yeah. turn a lot of people's crank. Well, you know, the Ticats did just that. They brought in two guys in the trenches, Justin Capicotti, a defensive end who's a Canadian, who could be, you know, a, a good ratio move in terms of uh, Canadian depth. And, and when he does get to play, they can, you know, uh, rejig their, their ratio uh, status. Uh, and the other guy, Xavier Fulton, who's going to be the left tackle on this team, um, is, is not only a depth move, but a move that is going to shore up the offensive line, is going to protect Zach Caleros. And, um, you know, is a move that I think is going to have a significant impact, just the nature of the beast in, in, in football. You know, if you can protect your quarterback and improve your running game just in one fell swoop of adding one guy, uh, you know, that, that's a big move. But back to those skill guys, yeah, they got to learn the playbook, they got to gel. The other, the other um, uh, you know, tidbit of info is there's not many teams that are going to trade a skill guy unless you're getting either a starter in return, which is rarely going to happen, or you're going to get a significant amount of draft picks or a neg list guy. Um, and, and again, teams are really unwilling to give up that kind of um, of stock to get one or two players. Going to change tack just for a second. We're going to go back to football, but just as a quick update, uh, Austin Matthews is now on pace for a 164-goal season. <laughs> he just picked up his second goal of the first period for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yes. The records will start to fall any second, although Mitch Marner could have three goals himself this period. Uh, you know what? I would believe that Toronto Council has already begun work on the parade route. So just um, <laughs> you know, we'll get a head start. Yeah, just something. Anyway, uh, back to this though. It is. Is there anything then? Because uh, I, again, we, you can't tinker with the game. You can't force people to make trades. It's been the way football is forever, and for all the reasons you just laid out, which are all accurate. But is there something then? That the CFL, and I know you you keep saying CFL, NFL, and you're absolutely right. It's the same thing. But here we're talking CFL. The NFL doesn't need attention. It gets plenty of it. So for the CFL, is there anything that they could do, even if it was a manufactured deadline, to create the kind of day that would make people who are CFL fans really, and even amateur or or casual fans, be really locked in to be watching? Could you say you got to set your playoff roster 
four day, four weeks before something. Is there anything that you could think of that would be that kind of thing that would create that kind of day for football fans? There's one thing that I can think of, and and it's in conjunction with uh, either the NFL or the NCAA, because I don't think you know moving the trade deadline to Labor Day, because you know Labor Day is going to get the attention no matter what. The trade deadline it really, for me, is not uh, is not a, a, a good starting point because there's just not going to be you know those significant moves. I think the only thing that the CFL can do in terms of a one day kind of attention grab would be. CFL teams uh, from top to bottom, one to nine, have a negotiation list kind of draft lottery. Uh, so you put all those ping pong balls in in the uh, you know the spinning wheel of uh, of uh, draft lotteries, and you know the numbers come down. And let's say the Ticats get that number one negotiation list draft lottery pick, and they announce, hey, we're going to uh, name you know Tim Tebow is going to be on our negotiation list. I think, and, and mm. just one round. You know, so you have nine you know, potentially superstar NCAA players, or CIS players for that matter, uh, that are now on your negotiation list. Now, the CIS guys wouldn't work because you still have that CFL Canadian draft, but you get my drift. You, so in other words, you don't have sort of just this invisible neg list thing yeah. that goes on. It's got to be out there. Exactly. and I, That's I really, a great idea. I understand why that, you know, that neg list is kind of invisible to the fans. But why? The sense, I don't. I, why? Well, well, the same sense is I don't understand because if you want to express um, to your fans that, hey, you know, this guy is on our list, this guy's on our radar, uh, and I'm sure there's been some absurd, uh, obscure names that you're never going to see in the CFL. For instance, you know, Peyton Manning may have been on somebody's <laughs> neg list way back when, when he's coming out of Tennessee. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the Alouettes or whoever in the CFL had Peyton Manning on their neg list. But I think that would just add a little more spice because fans would just, whenever they're watching the NFL and see this guy on TV, they would say, hey, you know, Saskatchewan has this guy on their neg list. Like, how cool is that? And it just generates a little more discussion. You know what? It's a great idea. And I've never understood the secrecy around the neg list. in, In fact... It strikes me, Rick, that the reason, for, for people who don't know what the neg list is, it's the, the, the negotiation list, and it's this, as I say, a secret private list that teams have that they exclusively could negotiate with this particular player who's on it if he becomes available. And it often is pie-in-the-sky ideas, like you just said. But half the time, it strikes me, the reason they keep it secret is because they're almost embarrassed they put a guy on their list. It's like it's almost like oh I can't tell anyone that we put Peyton Manning down there I look like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. I mean the 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 neg list I think is thirty five players. It's somewhere in around thirty five. So he times that by nine. So you're you're talking a lot of guys on this list, and I bet you more than half of the guys on the list, uh, probably well, well well more than half of the guys on the thirty five man list for each team would even consider coming to the Canadian Football League. So. I think it's I think it's there obviously for a particular reason. There are some guys on the list that do come up north. You'll hear from time to time, and the Ticats were involved in a trade. You know, earlier this week, where uh, the rights to a negotiation list player was sent to Saskatchewan in one of the deals. Um, and sometimes those guys do turn out to be good CFL players. We rarely hear that kind of story uh, come out that you know he was a neg list player. He was just some guy from the NCAA who, who came up north and started playing Canadian ball. Listen, we had a million stories already about whether or not Tim Tebow was on someone's neg list and whether he would come and all that kind of stuff. Why not just put it out there? And, and if it's going to be a story anyway, 
Let's make it a story, and let's, well, as you say, let's make it a, a, a thing that people can actually talk about. And here's the best part about your idea, Rick, which I think is very clever and very intelligent, and that is how many non-CFL fans are there who would actually tune into that because they actually know those names. Yeah, without a doubt. And, and you, you brought up one guy, and that's Tim Tebow. We knew he was on the Montreal Alouettes negotiation list. How it got out there, uh, I don't know, but it did. The other guy that is very polarizing is Johnny Manziel, and he was on the Tiger yes, Cats negotiation yes. list. He might, he might still be on it, uh, for all we know, and he probably is. Is he still alive? Uh, he's still alive at oh. last check. <laughs> and, and there's two great examples of guys who probably w- would never come up here, but just, just in mentioning those two names, they spark a conversation. Got only a minute or two left here. Um, switch with football, but it appears almost inevitable that there's going to be a crossover this year. Right now, the Argos have to win out. The Eskimos have to lose out for the Argos to prevent that from happening. So it looks like Edmonton, probably Edmonton, is going to end up in the East playoff bracket, which means if the Ticats want to get to the Grey Cup, they are probably, almost assuredly now, going to have to beat a Western team to get there. Is that very disappointing to the Ticats, or do you think, because they're going to say they don't care. Do you believe them if they say they don't care, or do you think, oh man, that's 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 a bad break for us? Well, you know, if I'm the Ticats, I would rather play Ottawa or Toronto in the playoffs. There's no doubt about that, because you know their uh, weaknesses and their strengths more than any other team in the league, because, you know, they're in the division, you play them three, four times a season, uh, you know, times that by how many seasons in the past, you know, they're you know, not, not necessarily their terminology, but, you know, the way they work, uh, the way that uh, the coaches tick, uh, you know, all those kind of inside information. You just have that familiarity with those two opponents. The one saving grace for the Ticats is if they do finish first, they get that first round by, they can let Ottawa deal with Edmonton and, and may the best team win. It's probably the Eskimos still but they still do have an opportunity to face a team like Ottawa in the East Final and, and just have to beat them to go to the Great Cup. But the funny thing is, if Edmonton keeps on winning, which I expect them to do, they're going to have the best record in the East yeah. and be the third-place team. Yeah. And it's just unbelievable. It's a discussion for another day, but it does mean we talked about, I think it was you and I the other day, talking about whether there should be a one one tier, one conference league, just the top nine teams in the CFL getting in. But it does raise the question, if I'm Edmonton and I finish with more points than anybody in the East, why do I have to play two road games to get in, which is more of an argument for the one division CFL, just top six get in and everyone else go home. And if that was the case, I know we're running out of time, you'd have Calgary, BC, Winnipeg, Edmonton, and then Ottawa, Hamilton, Toronto, Montreal, Saskatchewan. So <laughs> it would still be heavily dominated by the West, one through five. Fifth quarter, this Friday night, after the Ticats game, uh, small problem, Rick, I don't know if you picked this up, uh, the fifth quarter will be coming on right around the time the Blue Jays are heading into their late innings of their first game with <laughs> Cleveland. Um, so here's what to do. Rick will be on. Rick wants to talk to you. So turn your TV down and turn your radio up and talk with Rick about the Ticats while you're watching the Jays. Marco Strata is going to be so efficient. That game is going to be an hour and 58 minutes. And then you can tune in <laughs> to the fifth quarter afterwards. And if that doesn't happen, do you have some homemade poetry written to fill the airtime? Are you going to sing or what are you going to do? <laughs> we will be talking Ticats football regardless. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of Blue Jays. Rick will do all Ticat talk in the form of sonnet and iambic pentameter. 
<laughs> just to keep it interesting. Sounds like fun. Rick Zamperin, uh, fifth quarter host and guy you hear on this station all the time for his variety of jobs. Rick, thanks for doing this. All right, anytime. Take care. Uh, that is, uh, yeah, not not a lot of excitement today in the CFL trade deadline day. But what a great idea Rick has! What a great idea Rick has about the negotiation list draft. To me, that's a no brainer. That is that's the kind of thing you do to get attention. That's the kind of thing you do to get people talking about you, especially people who don't watch the CFL. But they know who Johnny Manziel is. They know who Peyton Manning is. They know who Tim Tebow is. I'm going to tune in. That might be interesting. And then maybe, maybe bit by bit, you start to lure them into the game. Why is Rick not working for the CFL? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. As we move along, there has been a whole lot of discussion in the last few days, ever since the Blue Jays swept their series over Texas, and then Cleveland swept their series over Boston. So we knew who the Jays were going to be playing in the next round. There has been a lot of talk about the Cleveland baseball team's name. We know it's the Indians. But some people, most notably where this real the conversation really got going again, Jerry Howarth, who does the play-by-play on the radio for the Blue Jays, it turns out won't say the name Indians. He just talks about Cleveland. And this was brought forward. I don't, Jerry Howarth didn't make a big announcement. Someone just asked him, noticed it, whatever. It came out very quietly. And he says, yeah, no, no, I, I won't, I won't use the name. It's not, I don't believe it. I don't believe in it. So this has now again become a talking point. Is the Cleveland Indians name racist? And I would argue that probably every single person has a view one way or the other. I mean, I find it hard to believe that people would hear the name and maybe think about it for five minutes and not have an opinion one way or the other. It either, you either feel it is, or you feel it's kind of benign or maybe something else, but it's okay. Well, there's been lots of talk about that. They even talked about it earlier today on the station. So I said, you know what, let's, let's go back further than that though, because that's, that's your thought process. That's what you think. That's cool. That's fine. You're fully entitled to whatever it is, whatever opinion you want to have on that. But there has to be a reason why this name was chosen for this team. Why? Where does the name come from? Well, there is someone who is going to be able to tell us this, or at least tell us the theories. He is a baseball historian, specifically a Cleveland Indians historian. He is an author. He runs a website. His name is Scott Longert, and he is joining us now. Scott, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, sure. No problem, Scott. Um, This is obviously, and I'm sure you've been down this road many times because it seems to come in waves every once in a while. It comes up as a hot issue, and then it fades away again, and it comes up again. Probably, I don't know, it's been probably been a hundred times that this has been a, a discussion point. But let's go through this, because I understand there are at least two or three theories of where or why the team was named the Indians. What, give me the first one, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, the very first one is very straightforward. It, uh, it simply was a matter of the team was called the Cleveland Naps in honor of Larry Lajaway, the great second baseman who's a Hall of Famer. He was uh, cut by the team in 1915, so they had to come up with a new name. 
And uh, supposedly, uh, newspaper reporters met with the ownership. Uh, the gentleman's name was Charlie Summers. They sat down in an afternoon, threw names around, and uh, the name Indians came up, and that was the, uh, the choice. And that, that's uh, probably the, the oldest version that we have. And so that was just a bunch of guys sitting around, and it was just a name that was pulled out of the air. Yeah, yeah, basically. Uh, yeah, they're probably looking at all the other team names and things that were maybe popular and exciting, and uh, they came up with that idea. This is January uh, 1915. Okay, Okay. so we're going back over over a century now. Okay, yes. so there, number one is just some the owner and some newspaper guys just came up with a name by pulling it out of thin air, which is may make some sense. I mean, does that, does that have a, whether or not that's the actual one, does that have a ring of truth to you that that could be feasible? It, it is feasible because uh, Cleveland had four newspapers at the time. The biggest one was the Plain Dealer, which is still around, and uh, they reported it in uh, just about one paragraph. It seemed to be very nonchalant that this is what we did. We all sat down and met and came up with this name, and that sounds very plausible that the guys would do that and just throw names around. And I think at the time, uh, team nicknames weren't absolutely essential to be popular. or They would come up with a name, and, and that was it. I don't think people lived and died with the, with the name of the team. Basically. Well, especially not if there was, because they were the Spiders first, right? Yes, they were. They were the Spiders, then the Naps for uh, Lajouet. Uh, yeah. And then, so, I mean, when you say it, team nicknames weren't all essential, nowadays you have focus groups and marketing groups and style groups and polls and everything else. If you were ever going to dare to change a team's nickname because it's their entire brand, then yeah. it was whatever. Yeah, I think that was more the case. And when they first came in the American League, they had three or four names. They were the Blues, the Broncos, the Bluebirds. Uh, for a short time, as a joke, they were referred to as the Giants because they had a few guys over six feet tall. So I don't think it really was essential to have something really meaningful as a nickname back then. It almost sounds as though the nickname was whatever you wanted it to be at that time. It, like it literally was a, it sounds like it was a nickname related to the team itself. If they were called the Naps because they had Lajoie, it sounds like you changed the name to fit with whatever the guys on the field were. Yeah, I, th- I think somewhat, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, w- that was the case. And again, it wasn't something that uh, people agonized over. There weren't uh, letters to the editor. There weren't uh, editorials in the papers. They simply changed the name and moved on, and, and that was it. They were the Indians, and, and people just moved on. All right, that is number one, then. That, the bunch of guys just sitting around, and they pull the name out of the air because it kind of sounded cool at the time. All right, what, what would be the second option of, or the second theory of how the name Indians came to be for Cleveland? Yeah, this is where the uh, the controversy comes in. We had an outfielder uh, back in the mid-1890s named Louis Sokalexis. He was the first Native American to play in Major League Baseball in uh, the National League. Cleveland was, was a member of the National League at that time. He got off to a fabulous start. He was tremendous for the first half of the season, but things fell apart. There were lots of stories, but apparently he had a problem with, with alcohol, and that really diminished his playing. He was gone by about 1898, and he died in December of 1913. But somehow a word spread that uh, the name came to honor his memory. That's, that's probably the most controversial one people still talk about today. But there's really nothing to back that up. I mean, again, with the, with the research I've looked at, his name doesn't pop up anywhere. And uh, his, I think he was largely forgotten by, uh, by some 18, 19 years later. But today, even so, people will say it was definitely named after uh, Louis Sokalexis. And if, in fact, it was named after Louis Sokalexis, was it then, from your understanding, if that was the case, was it done in an honoring way or in a mocking way? 
I believe it was supposed to have been an honoring way. That that's the theory that uh, that I've read about and heard about. It got carried through the decades. So uh, people uh, talk today about that uh, based on. Inf- I think it came from a book uh, written in 1948 by uh, Whitey uh, Whitey Lewis. He was a a reporter for the Cleveland Press. He doesn't say that's what happened, but he mentions Louis Alexis in the same paragraph that the Indians got the name uh, of the Indians. And I think people may have read that and just real thought, oh, that's what he means, is that they named it after him. And I think that's where that all began. I don't see anything previous that I wasn't able to find really much of anything. So, Scott, if that was the case, uh, and again, it's a theory. Well, first of all, before I get there, does that have the ring of truth to you? Does that sound like it is a reasonable theory of where the name could have come from? To me, no, I, I don't think so. Again, by the timing of it, that uh, the ball player was, was gone from Cleveland in 1897, and then why in 1915 would you be honoring this individual? Sure, he had his moments in his time. He was a, a great player for, for a short time, but we're talking about almost another generation, 18 years later. I don't think that right away people were thinking of him as someone to honor. I mean, there were other players, there were Cy Young and other guys like that that could have easily been called themselves the Youngs or something. something they say, like yeah, the, the Cleveland size. <laughs> yeah, the Cleveland size. Yeah. But, and, and to use your example, and I'm just pulling a name out of thin air here, but for a brief period of time, probably close to 20 20 years ago in Toronto, uh, Mookie Wilson, who had been with the Mets on the World Series team with Bill Buckner, uh, Mookie Wilson was a very popular player for a flash in Toronto. And so that would sort of be the equivalent of today, the Blue Jays renamed their team the Mookies, just because of a guy who was here a while ago for a short time. Yeah, I, it just doesn't seem plausible that that would be the idea behind it. Uh, just so that, that uh, based on that, and looking at, uh, at at dates around there, and looking at newspaper clippings back then, I just don't see that. That that was the. Uh, I think there would have been stories later, within days or weeks after that, about what they did. But I don't see anything in print, unless I unless I missed it. But I, I haven't seen anything. But is that not for a lot of people when they when the debate about the name Indians comes up? Is that not often the the thing that a lot of people lean on and they say, listen, it was honoring a guy who was a Native American player, therefore it's okay. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Yes, it, it sounds like, again, if you believe that theory or uh, stand by that shirt, sure, they were honoring someone and doing something good. You can use that as an argument, uh, which has its points. But I think the bottom line is I don't think the team was named after him. So I think that kind of throws out that argument there. I think it was convenient to pick that up. But again, I don't think it's plausible. Are there any other theories about where the name came from? Yeah, there's one more, and, and this one, again, could this one has some credence to it. In 1914, the Boston Braves won the pennant in the World Series. They were in last place in July of 14. They came all the way back to win the pennant and the series, and they were called the Miracle Braves. And I've read about that uh, some of the thinking from the, the Indians official, or the Cleveland officials, rather, was that, look at those Braves. They did so fabulous. You know, we haven't been doing well. Maybe that'll give us some luck, so we'll call ourselves the Indians. That's another one I haven't seen proven, but I think that one has a little more uh, ring to it that that's a possibility. You know, it's a, a, on a positive note, at least they weren't still called the Boston Bean Eaters, or else you got who knows what the Cleveland team might have been called at that time. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but, that, I mean, again, and that one seems to have at least the possibility that it's, it's, it's silly enough that it probably is possibly true. 
I think so. It's possible one of those sports writers in, the, in that meeting might have brought that up. When they, they may have brought up the name, and he said, what about the Braves? You know, they just won the World Series. Maybe that will give us some luck. The, team, the franchise had not been doing very well over the, the first decade. They had kind of they had went downhill a bit, and they were really struggling. And despite anything, we thought, well, maybe for luck will be the, uh, will be the Indians. And that's another one that's a possibility. I think it has some, some merit to it, but, again, it's not proven. What do the fans down there think about this? Because, again, I mean, we, we know what we've heard lots from fans in Washington, D.C. when the topic of the Redskins, the football team name, comes up. We've heard other teams where this has been an issue. What do Cleveland fans think whenever the issue is raised and the debate reignites? I think, you know, there's pros and cons to it. You know, there's folks that, you know, will, will defend the name quite vehemently, and there, there's some folks that are on the other side. But I think to a lot of people, you know, if you've been a lifelong fan, you kind of associate the city with, with, the, with, the, with the nickname. And I think in, in this day and age, I think some folks think it's simply a name. You know, it's, it's the Cleveland name. It's, it's our team, and they happen to be the Indians. It could be any name. But they think that it's harmless in that sense, that it wasn't done in a bad way 100 years ago, and that's the name we have. And, and I think others think, it, well, that may have been, but in, in today's society and the way things are, it just isn't appropriate. So I think it goes back and forth. But I think the majority of fans just look at a baseball team and our Cleveland team we put on the field, and that's what's important. And, and I think that's, I think, I believe the majority thinks that way. The logo, now we've all heard about Chief Wahoo. Uh, and that, that's one of those things that really, when you talk about the Indians, that when people see the chief head logo, they, especially today, cause it really, that especially looks kind of politically incorrect. And my understanding is, and we've heard many, many reports about this, that that image has really kind of been phased out. You see an awful lot less of it around the ballpark, around the Indians team itself. Is that the case or, or is it still every bit as much in the forefront as it always was? Chief Wahoo is still there, but the team has gone to some alternatives. Uh, they've gone into the Black Sea. That, that's a big thing now, that you'll see the big C on the uniform, and that's what that represents the team. And I think the interesting thing is everybody's fine with that. I mean, sure, people like Chief Wahoo when, when they see him, and, uh, and he's on some of the uniforms, but I think the Black Sea has gone over very well, and people like that. And they're, they're pretty nice uniforms. I really, I really think they are what they've done in, in a way. So they've taken some of the emphasis away, but he's still there on, on certain uniforms. But I think people have accepted that, and uh, who knows what would happen if they did eventually phase him out. I think there'd be folks, again, on both corners. Some would uh, just take whatever symbol they have. This is great. That's our team. I, and I do wonder, Scott, as I, I just have a minute or so left here, but I do sure. wonder about that because there has obviously in certain places where they have team names that are politically incorrect that some people call racist, there has been pushback against change. And I wonder, though, with all of these things, and you're the historian, you're the guy who's followed this team, if they were to change the name, if they said, listen, when we named the team the Indians, it was benign, it was harmless, we certainly meant no harm, and for many, many years, uh, it was there was nothing wrong with it. But, you know, times have changed, and tastes have changed, and sensibilities have changed, it's time to change the name. What do you think would be the level of anger or 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 appreciation for that. How do you think that would break down there? I think there would be some pushback, but I think it would fade away. I think uh, the most important thing is the ball club and what they're doing on the field. And I think initially some folks would get a bit bit upset, but I think that I think that would pass. Again, is is uh, I think it's more about the ball club than than, than symbol that they have. It is a. Um 
it is a hot story uh, as far as uh, discussion goes, but it's also a fascinating story about the history of where this came from. Scott Longer, now you have a website that uh, that people, if they want to read more about the Cleveland Indians, what's the website? It's uh, just scottlonger.com, and I do, I do blog every week and post new information. I also have a new book on the Indians that just came out, No Money, No Beer, No Penance. It's about the team in the Great uh, Depression years and how they survived. And uh, so people can look at that at the website and get all, all the information they need. Well, and Scott, I, I really appreciate you doing this, especially in the days before the Indians get knocked out of the playoffs. This is going to, it's going to be tough for you guys, but you know what? <laughs> but we can, we persevere. We've shown that. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited. It's uh, you know what? It's going to be an exciting series. You get the way you guys took care of Boston. I had no expectation that the Indians were going to beat the Red Sox and uh, it wasn't even a fair fight. And so uh, we will see what happens when the Blue Jays and the Indians get going. But I really right. appreciate you doing this tonight. Thanks so much for the time. Oh, thank you, Scott. That is uh, Scott Longer, uh, L-O-N-G-H-E-R-T, if you want to look up his website, find out a whole bunch of stuff. There's a lot of really interesting stuff there about the Indians. But this whole thing with the Indians' name, it's, you get into these situations where it becomes a fight because it's a fight. And I, I mean, I believe, again, you you can say the, the Indian's name is benign. You can say it's horribly racist. Part of that may come from what you believe is the origin of it. If you believe, excuse me, if you believe that the one theory that he actually holds the least belief in, but if you believe that the team was named in honor of Louis Sokolexis, that it was named in honor of their great Native American player, you can, I believe, make a substantial case to say there is some merit in keeping that name. If you were naming something in honor of someone, if we, we used to have Iverwin Stadium here in Hamilton. If suddenly another Iverwin came along who was not popular, but you can still point to, well, we named it after Iverwin, the original Iverwin, there is an argument to be made, well, we'll keep the name the same as it was. You understand what I'm saying? So in this case, if you believe that it was named after their great Native American player, you could make a case that changing it from that is somehow insulting. But if you don't believe that it's named after him, if you believe that it was just chosen out of thin air by some newspaper guys and the owner of the team or to bring good luck, then there's not the foundation there that would say we have to keep the team name. Yes, you've got the history since then, but you don't have the reason that it would have to be that name. And I believe you could very easily say, listen, as I said a moment ago, at the time, for many years, this was a name that was meant not in a negative way, but times and tastes and sensibilities have changed and therefore we have to change with it. And so we are going to change the name of that. And I think you could probably in Cleveland get away with that. People are not going to not come to the park if you were to decide to make that move. And I think you could do it in a way that would even appease those who feel strongly that it has to still be the history of the Cleveland Indians. And you know how you could do it? There's one very simple way. You go back to what it was even before then. You go back and you call it the Cleveland Spiders. You go back and you call it the whatever you want to call it from the, even before the Indians team name. And you say, yeah, we are going to go with history. We are going to honor the tradition. We're going back and we're calling it the Cleveland spiders. 
I, I do understand why it could be tough for some Cleveland fans to see the name of their team change because thinking about it from the sports teams I support, it would be difficult to see their name change because I've known my entire life them as whatever they are. Like if the Maple Leafs for some reason were the to Maple change Leafs their name. The Maple Leafs become the Cougars. Right. Like it, it would be difficult for me because I know them as the Maple Leafs. The difference is that should all go out the window because the team name is no longer proper it's not like i have seen arguments about the blackhawks uh as a a name that maybe shouldn't exist anymore and i i'm sure there are some people out there who find it offensive there is a history to that name there's reasoning behind why they named it it was after i believe a squadron in world war ii or world war one a military unit something to that effect but the name blackhawks itself i I could be corrected on this, but I don't believe it is inherently offensive. The name Indians is offensive. The name Redskins is offensive. Those names have to go. It's like the Braves is another good example. It's I can see why people want it to be gone, but I don't believe the term brave in itself is offensive. It is. uh, It's one of these topics that, as I say, it, a lot of the people, a lot of your view on whether or not Indians is an appropriate term for a team name will depend on what you believe is the root, which is why we wanted to bring him on today. Because if you believe this is something that is honoring someone, it isn't as, it, it seems as though it is more acceptable to a lot of people. But and if it seems, and if it's not, if it's just to throw it out there and it could be any team name, then... It could be any team name. But can you really be honoring somebody with an offensive name for that person? Like, that's that's what's tough for me. Is Yes, I'm aware that was the terminology back then, but it, it isn't anymore. Like, the fact of the matter is, in this interview, when you were talking about this player that is supposedly being honored, you both called him Native American every single time you referred to him. You never once called him an Indian because that is offensive to say. And so how can you honor somebody with an offensive term? It's an interesting question. I don't think it comes with an easy answer, though, because I don't even believe that everybody who is a Native American, because I'm not going to try and step in it here, because, you know, I mean, these are words that, let's be honest, there is vernacular, there are words that change a lot, and it's easy to step in something. But there are even some people who are Native American who would probably call themselves something else. I'm sure there are. Probably. And so it's, and it's, so it's a very, it's not, here's the point about this whole thing. It may be simple, but it may not be as simple. And the, the, the easy way to fix this, if you were, if you believe that this needs to be fixed and you are the Cleveland organization, there is an easy way to fix this. And that is you propose an answer that is as good or better, and that actually has some merit behind it, as I say, go back to the Spiders, go to whatever team name existed before the Indians, and that can then be the team you are going to come up and you're going to propose and we're going to move to that. We're going to keep the same colors, we're going to keep almost everything the same, and we're actually going back in history. We are taking something that actually reflects our history even more than this, and then you can probably convince people. Anyway, we got to run. I'm way late. Fascinating topic, though. That's the history of it. So when you're having your discussion with someone the the next time about whether or not this is a a team name that should or shouldn't stay, at least you can now bring forward the three theories. 
It was either a bunch of guys sitting around trying to come up with a team name, newspaper and ownership. It was named after Lewis Sock Alexis, their great Native American player. Or it was named basically after the Braves because the Braves were doing so well and it seemed like it might bring some good luck if we chose a similar type name. You decide. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.